Our text this evening is from the Old Testament Psalter, Psalm 131, and I invite you tonight to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 131, page 614 in the Pew Edition Bible. Psalm 131, a psalm of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. May I ask you please to keep your Bibles open to the psalm and to commit this psalm to memory. It's very short and certainly one that's easy to remember, Psalm 131. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, someone once said that this psalm, Psalm 131, is the shortest psalm to read, but the longest psalm to learn. We can comprehend the words, of course. Anyone who knows how to read can do that. But to be able to put this into practice, to be the person described here, someone who's humble, someone who's learned to calm his soul, someone who could be described, spiritually speaking, as like a weaned child sitting at his mother's lap. What is this psalm, after all? It's been described as a maintenance psalm, reminding us that the Christian life is like the life of a a tree or a bush that must be pruned. It must be maintained. It must be attended to if it's going to be fruitful, if it's going to live the way it was intended to live. You know what I'm talking about, especially here in this part of the country. You prune. Sometimes you have to prune way back in the spring or maybe in the fall. But if you don't prune, the plant becomes overgrown and ultimately it becomes useless. After all, didn't our Lord Jesus speak that way in John 15? That the Father's purpose was to prune us back. To prune us back so that we may bear more fruit. And for that reason, this has been described as a maintenance, a pruning type of psalm. It's a song of ascents. And it may seem strange to us if you're familiar with that theme of the song of ascents or that category. These were communal songs. These were congregational songs sung by the Israelites as they made their way to the tabernacle and temple for the various feasts throughout the year. But there's something different about this psalm. This is an individual psalm. This is a psalm of David. So picture it this way. Perhaps it's more helpful to think of a choir singing, and during the course of a concert or during some rendition of a song, a soloist comes out. 
David comes out as a soloist, and he tells us about his own experience, spiritually speaking, the transformation, the pruning that he's gone through, and then he invites us. He invites the the congregation. He invites the audience, fellow participants in worship. He invites us into that process as well. Hope in the Lord, he concludes, from this time forth and forevermore. Trust in him in terms of that refining, that pruning, that maintenance work that he does. And so this evening we spend a few moments looking at this psalm. Two things really that come out from this psalm, particularly from verses 1 and 2. There is really here a call to learn how to settle down. Settle down, calm down. Some have said, learn that perhaps your britches are too big, if I may use that expression, and you need to be humbled. But there's also the imagery of learning how to grow up. You're not an infant, spiritually speaking, anymore. You need to mature. You need to act in a way that is consistent with the faith you profess. Verse 3 tells us how that is accomplished. So we'll look at those tonight from Psalm 131. Turn with me again to verse 1 where the psalmist says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He's talking about the original sin of mankind. The original sin of mankind is what? It's pride. To elevate yourself beyond where you should be. To put yourself front and center. All of you who have raised teenagers, or all of you who remember your teen years, remember that during that time of raising adolescents and teenagers, I've always said you spend a lot of time as parents talking with your children about astronomy. Astronomy? Yes. Because you have to teach your children they are not the center of the universe. But that's something we struggle not only as teenagers, but throughout our lives. And this is precisely what the psalmist is talking about. I live well. I find joy I rest contentedly when I am not the center of the universe. But I see myself in relation to the God who made me and the God who redeemed me. But this is very difficult. This is very difficult, especially when we live in a culture, in a day in which pride and ambition, selfish ambition are praised. It's a virtue, says our culture, to be ambitious. We we idolize, we admire the ambitious, so long as they don't hurt us. But we idolize them, we praise them. They are the leaders, the movers, the shakers. Some of you may remember the character of Gordon Gecko from the movie Wall Street. Now, I'm dating myself when I make that reference, but he is this corporate raider. 
he goes before a group of stockholders and he begins his speech at the prospect of a, a takeover. He says, greed is good. Not just greed for money, but greed for life. Greed for happiness. Greed for this. Greed for that. Greed is good. And the people applaud him. Pride undervalues others. Pride says, I am lifted up over against you. I see you not on level ground, but as someone beneath me. Someone who's there to serve me. Someone who's there to fulfill my needs. But there's also presumption where we overvalue ourselves. I am more important. I am the center of the universe. Think about how that plays out in Scripture. I mentioned the Garden of Eden and pride. Think of the Tower of Babel. Think of the Tower of Babel. Man says, no, we'll do it ourselves. We will build some monument. We'll build some building to honor ourselves, to magnify the name of mankind. Now think about this. We're called. We're called to live always in the presence of God. But we want to build this tower. When God had promised originally to give them a place in the Garden of Eden. Well, we don't want that. We don't want that. And Satan, of course, plants the seed that God doesn't want you to be happy. That God doesn't have your best interest in mind. And so you need to take the reins for yourself. But what happens with ambition? There's a whole host of problems connected with ambition. There's anxiety. Is it ever enough? Will it ever satisfy my ambition, my longings, my continual grasping for that which I do not have? You know what I'm talking about, surely. Or irritation. I'm irritable when I don't get what I, what I want, what I think I deserve, what God owes me. Or there's despondency. Where we become so depressed, so low, because things didn't work out the way we thought they should have. Or we expected God to act in one way, but he acted in a much different way. And therefore, we're angry with God. Now, we should be clear here tonight. The Bible does speak about aspiration. You think, for example, the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3, what he aspires to do. He makes plans for the future. But of course, those plans, those aspirations are always aligned with the purposes of God. God, where you send me, there I will go. And so he'll say in chapter 4, I know what it's like to have a great deal, material-wise. I know what it's like to go without. I'm not expecting, I'm not demanding that God has to act in one way. And if he doesn't act in the way I want him to, I'll simply disown him. But he says, rather, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But there's a humility about this, a recognition that 
it is ultimately not his will that is directing things. It is the will of God. That's how God intended it to be. He is the sovereign one. We are his people. And that means that we trust his wisdom as well as his power. And we walk by faith. Ambition says, no. No, we don't want that. Ambition says, I'll do it myself. I'll create my own destiny. It is the picture, says Jesus, of the farmer who has a bumper crop. And he says, now I'm going to have to build a bigger barn. Now, preaching in DeMott here, I'm sure you're thinking, well, what's wrong with that? I'll build more bins. I'll have to hire more trucks to haul the grain out, whatever the case may be. You say, that, that's simply good business. That's not the issue, said Jesus. It's this presumption on the part of this farmer, this landowner, who says, now I can tell my soul, oh, so you can rest. In other words, he's put his trust in his possessions, in his material success, in his business operation, his farming. And we can all relate to that. What a dangerous thing it is to put our trust in something that was never designed by God to give us that ultimate sense of security. But this is what we wrestle with day in and day out, don't we? My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and marvelous for me. Of course, the Bible warns about trying to penetrate the deep things of God. There are some things that we will never fully comprehend in terms of the sovereign will of God and how that works out in the course of human history. But I think the meaning here is broader than that. I do not seek to scrutinize what God has done or the way God operates or presume to know that I know better how my life should go than what God seems to be doing in my life. How God directs, how God opens and closes doors. I don't get angry when things don't seem to make sense. I don't turn my back on God or become bitter and angry towards God. I will not clamor for attention. You see, there's something restless, something unruly, isn't there, about ambition. How much is enough? And you've heard the old Russian story about the man who was told that he could, if he could walk, whatever he could walk around the perimeter, whatever he could do within the course of day, from sunup to sundown, that would be his. How much land does a man need, the story goes. And so he walks. He says, hey, this, this land here in Damod is not too bad, is it? They raise nice crops here. They have nice farm equipment here. I think I'll keep on walking. He walks and walks and realizes as the day goes on, he's walking further trying to grab more land for himself. He comes towards the end of the day and he's so exhausted, 
he falls to the ground and he dies. And the story ends, how much land does a man need? About six feet to bury him. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Do we have that kind of humility, that kind of trust that's described here as being childlike? Childlike. That's what it means to settle down. But then the second imagery is learning how to grow up. The person might say when they read that first part, okay, if we're not to be ambitious, unruly, restless in that sense, where things never satisfy us, are we saying then that the alternative is that, well, we're to be the world's doormat? Or as someone described it, to be a dishrag saint. <laughs> you do nothing. You kind of float along like dead fish in a stream carried by the current. Is that what we're to be? Is that the description? The answer is no. The answer is no. But I have calmed, verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul. What does that look like? Well, it looks like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. You know the difference between a nursing child and a weaned child sitting upon its mother's lap. A nursing child is fidgety, always moving around, always restless. Mom is simply there as the source of food, the source of nourishment. She is a source of safety and protection. That's all she is. That's the kind of restlessness that we're to avoid. The psalmist says, no, we're like the wean child. The wean child who thinks of his mother as more than simply there's food. You love mother. You want to be near mother. But you're not so attached to mother that if you move away from mother, you get so agitated. You can't, you can't live without her. Now, I think I know what some of you are thinking right now. Especially some of the ladies here tonight. You're saying, um, excuse me, but what do you possibly know about nursing mothers? And about weaning children. Well, I had children, and I have even seen with my own grandchildren how that works out. My youngest granddaughter, until she turned about one, anytime I was within six feet of her, she'd scream, she'd cry. We have a lovely Christmas picture from last year where my wife is holding her, and she's screaming, even though mom is taking the picture. Because she can't be away from mama. Well, we've made progress, thank the Lord. Now we're the best of friends. At least I think we are. But there was a time where if mom wasn't in the room and she looked around, she would just start screaming. That's what we're talking about. I have learned to calm and quiet my soul. 
is the distinction between being irritable versus being contented. Where there is faith, where there is repentance, where there is obedience, trusting in the word and the promises of God, there is that equilibrium. I am at peace. I am at rest. How is that? How is that? How is that possible? What is it about that weaned child that seems so appealing? Think for a moment of what the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said about this. He has this beautiful quote. He says, why is it desirable to be even as a weaned child? Why is that description the model, the example for us to set our lives by? He says, it is excellent in every way. You will know it best by attaining to it. For when you are weaned, your desires will no longer worry you. Curb desire, and you have struck at the root of half your sorrow. Just pause here for a moment and say this is different, by the way, than what the Buddhist will say. The Buddhist says that the problem of mankind is that he has desire. Rid yourself of desire, and you can be at peace. But the Christian says, no, God created us to have strong desires, but those desires must be, must be rooted in faith, properly directed towards God, trusting in his care. He goes on to say, he smarts not under poverty who has learned to be content. He frets not under affliction who is submissive to the Father's will and lays aside his own. When your desires are held within bounds, your temptations to rebel are ended. You wanted this and you wanted that, and so you quarreled with God and your Lord, and you were seldom on good terms. He did not choose to pamper you, and you wanted that he should. And so you fretted like a weaning, like a weaning child. Now you leave it to his will, and you have peace. The strife is over. Your soul is quieted and behaves itself becomingly. Now, also, your resentments against those who injured you are gone. You were angry with a certain person, but your irritability has ended with your weaning. You see that God sent him to do this which has troubled you. And you accept his hard words and cruel actions as from God, and you are angry no more. You do not kick and struggle now against your condition and position, and you no longer murmur and complain from day to day as if you were hardly dealt with. No, if God chooses to better your circumstances, you will be glad. If he does not, you just take it as you find it, for you could not blame his providence. That's what we're talking about here. It's not the lack of desire, but it is the desire that is properly directed properly rooted in the word of God, properly understanding God's purposes, both in times of joy as well as in times of sorrow, in times of blessing and in times of hardship. That's why we sang the song that we did before the sermon tonight. Be still, my soul, understand 
Not only that God is in control of all these things, but that God exercises that sovereignty in a way that brings glory to his name and ultimately is for the working out of your salvation. Certainly these are things that we would probably not choose for ourselves, to be sure. But when we look back, we see God indeed knew what he was doing. And God brought us through those trials, through those difficulties, to strengthen, to refine, to perfect our faith, to draw us closer to himself. And had we received what we had thought God owed us, it would have been disastrous. How many of us long for an easy life, a comfortable life, a life that follows the path of least resistance, right? But God says, not only do I have something different, I have something ultimately better. That's what it means to learn how to grow up. When we think about growing up, about maturity, I think sometimes the danger, the risk for many of us, at least in our circles, is to think of maturity simply as the expanding of our knowledge of the Bible and of Christian theology. Now, it includes that, that maturity, growing in the understanding of the gospel. But I think that limits it in a way that doesn't do justice to what the Bible talks about. Growing up means becoming more Christ-like, becoming more submissive to his will, learning to find joy even in the difficulties of life, seeing his hand at work. Again, think of the psalm as a maintenance psalm. Does a person reach this point overnight? One sermon will do it. So if I should come back again next time, I can... I can be assured that every person sitting in the pew here tonight will be as calm and as mature and as Christ-like as David describes here in Psalm 131. No, that's not going to happen. It takes a lifetime. There are starts, there are fits back and forth. We struggle, we seek understanding, we try to make our way through these things, but we We press on, don't we? We press on. And we see the Lord's hand at work. How does this happen? How does this happen? Is it simply willpower? Is it simply a change of attitude? I want to read to you by way of conclusion tonight what someone said in describing the change that takes place here in terms of verse 3, when it says, hope in the Lord. He asks the question, how do you purify your heart? How does a proud heart become a humble heart? You do not wrestle yourself down by doing penance. You can beat on yourself, resolve to mend your ways, wear a hair shirt, and still be proud. Stop there for a moment. Didn't Luther discover that? He'd whip his back into a bloody mess. He'd sleep on a cold floor. He did all the things that a good, devout monk was supposed to do, and yet he was not at peace. 
I read on. You do not destroy the tumult of self-will by sheer will. I will stop being irritable. I will stop being fretful. I will stop imposing my will on the universe. Can the leopard change its spots? You are not strong enough. You are too strong. You only wrestle yourself down by the promises of God's loving kindness. You need the invasion of the Redeemer, the hand of the shepherd. You need great help the way a drowning man needs great help from outside himself to rescue him. Only one thing is strong enough to overpower and slay unruly cravings and a stormy life. What God promises to do in and through Jesus Christ. It is by precious and very great promises that we escape the corruption that is in the world by lust. From God's side, we escape ourselves by being loved by Jesus Christ through the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit himself. From our side, we escape ourselves by learning a lifestyle of intelligent repentance, genuine faith, and specific obedience. What a beautiful, beautiful encouragement to us. So the message is not, you just got to try harder. You've got to work at it more. Yes, we work at it more, but ultimately it is the grace of Jesus Christ that we cling to that we hold on to, that gives us the encouragement and the incentive to rid ourselves of this idea that unruly ambition is the way I'm going to find peace and happiness in this world. And we learn to trust God. We learn to see his wisdom and his love as our Father for Jesus' sake. And so, may it be said of us, that we have calmed and quieted our souls, like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Oh, Israel, oh, Emmanuel, you are see. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we confess to you and we lay before you the unruly ambitions, the restlessness, the irritability that so often preoccupies our minds and our hearts. In one form or another, Perhaps even now, Father, if we were honest, we would confess that those kind of concerns preoccupy our minds. Teach us by your grace and through the work of your spirit to trust you more and more so that we know the joy and the satisfaction, the peace that surpasses all understanding so that it could be said of us that we are like a weaned child 
sitting at his mother's lap, contented, at peace. So bless this word to our hearts, we pray. For Jesus' sake.